0: One
1: minute to abandon ship. The ship will automatically destruct in T minus one minute. I will win the crowd. I will give them something they've never seen before. Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This, this is history.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in to the Duel of the Greats podcast, season one, episode four, Worst of the Best week. Last week, we did the best of the best, the two movies from both these directors that had won Best Picture. This week, we do Worst of the Best, the two worst movies that either director has directed. Now, before we get started, a bit of a of a mea culpa here so we have a a very specific methodology created by our resident historian steve Shepard here um and that is with that we got a little confused and we were we were doing the outro from last week we said it was going to be the counselor uh or i'm sorry we said it was going to be a 1941 from steven spielberg and legend from ridley scott but it's actually 1941 from steven spielberg and the counselor from Ridley Scott. That's what we'll be discussing this week. Sorry for the confusion. If you were my really hoping to get fault. that legend Just discussion, fall on the sword,
1: but, it's me. My bad.
2: But we're here. Um, so, before we get started, folks, with me as always, like I said, our resident historian, Stephen Shepard, and our resident theologian, scholar, Nathan Carter. How are you guys doing this evening? I always feel Good. weird saying, How are you doing this evening on a podcast? Because most people are probably listen to they it at know. like nine They're in the morning at work. So, wherever you are, Good day to you, good evening, Good morrow. whatever it is. so um, but anyway, we'll just jump right in here. So, like I said, we got a distinct methodology before um, we get in and and you know, as always, we're going to be comparing these movies directly as if you've listened to the first three episodes so far, which you know you should if you haven't. Go on back, and if you if you were just typing for podcasts about Steven Spielberg's 1941, and this is what came up, then uh, go ahead and go back and look at the other epi- listen to the other episodes that we have, and you can kind of get a feel for what we're about. But we're going to compare them,
1: and, um, and also why were you searching for that? You just, what please, drove you? Actually, search specifically send from.
2: us let us know how you why you were searching for that specifically, please. But um, so yeah, we're we're gonna compare and contrast the directors, their what they did well, what they did um. But they didn't do well. And in this case, for this week, it's going to be a lot that they didn't do well. But um, that's okay. That's the fun. This is going to be a fun episode. Uh, as always, though, spoiler warning. If you haven't seen, um, 1941 is um, like 45 years old almost at this point. So Sorry. I'm not going to apologize too much. The Counselor is 10 years old now, so I still won't apologize too much for that. Um, but spoiler warning, if you haven't seen any of them and you want, we're going to talk about everything. So that's out there. And, um, you know, some of these movies deal with some serious topics. Last week we talked about Schindler's List, et cetera. And so, you know, this week there's um, The Counselor is a very violent movie. So uh, if any of that stuff... Um, triggers you, you know, fair warning on that. And if you feel like you want to skip this episode until we have a little more wholesome stuff, that's absolutely fine. Anyway, as I talked about, we have a very specific methodology for how we determined what movies we were going to talk about. And that was all Steve that created that. So Steve, I'm going to kick it over to you and you're going to explain this so they know where we're coming from when we're looking at these, how we determine these movies here.
1: All right, I can sure do that. So uh, if you're on this podcast, listening to this podcast, you probably are familiar with Rotten Tomatoes. It is a uh, ratings and uh, review aggregator website for movies. And essentially, it uh, they have what they call their uh, tomato meter. And uh, <clears throat> it takes a bunch of different reviews from different... Uh, it's the Tomatometer, Steve. Come on. The toma. <laughs> you're right. Thermometer, thermometer, tomato meter, mm-hmm. thermometer, whatever. Uh, but... Basically it takes, um, it aggregates critical reviews, uh, and essentially gives a percentage of the, uh, percentage of critics that liked it. Essentially the higher on the tomato (laughs) meter, the, the better the movie. Um, if it's quote unquote certified fresh, that means it's good. And if you actually go on the website, it has a fun little tomato. It's a nice, ripe, juicy looking tomato. Um, if it's not fresh, what is, is there a term? If it's not fresh it's just rotten. It's a rotten movie. Hence the the name of the the whole website. Anyway, um, it has a nice visual of a, you know, nasty green splotch. So what I did was I took the tomato meter percentages and then I took the audience score percentages, which are different. Um, and I combined the two essentially. Uh, I averaged them out and then I went boop and rated all the director's films. Um, we took the very bottom combined score for both of those, which turned out to be 1941 and the counselor, as he mentioned last week. So for a long time, after we planned this for some reason, at one point when I checked this, I came up with legend, the Ridley Scott's movie legend starring Tom Cruise as the worst rated. I don't know how I screwed that up so bad because it's not even close to the worst one. It's like in the bottom third, but it's definitely not the worst. So I hope we get a chance to watch that movie. Cause it looks batshit shit bait, crazy bananas, but, um, we're not watching it today. So, anyway, um, yeah, Steve's okay. our
2: resident historian, so he usually gives us our our background here on all these. So, so
1: take it so, away. Nineteen forty-one uh, is a film from nineteen seventy-nine, directed by Steven Spielberg. The uh, if you haven't seen it, the plot synopsis is pretty simple. Pearl Harbor, um, which you know, December seventh, nineteen forty-one. They do live in infamy. The Japanese attack us. They sink you know a whole bunch of battleships. It's bad news for everybody involved. Uh, I guess, except for the Japanese. Regardless, um, there was a war scare on in mainland America. And this movie is movie's actually kind of based on a couple of true things that happened. Um, a Japanese submarine did actually shell a, uh, a fuel refinery in California. And um, there was, it was like, they call it the Battle of Los Angeles. It really actually kind of did happen. It was a, It was a scare, a war scare, just kind of like what happens in this movie. Not quite to the same extent. Um, but essentially, also you know, not everyone... to be
2: confused with battle Los Angeles, true, which true. is a movie, completely different.
1: much higher body count. Although <laughs> I don't know after watching and, movie,
2: and many more aliens,
1: that's true. Quite a few more. Um, but you know, people were scared. They didn't know if the Japanese were going to actually come and invade and attack. And, uh, so that's what this movie is about. And it, it, it actually was originally pitched, um, by the writers who we'll talk about here in a minute as a um, serious depiction. Um, And that clearly didn't happen. This turned into a satire pretty quick. Um, Actually, once Steven Spielberg and MGM got their hands on it. The original writers were Robert Zemeckis and um, uh, Bob Gale, who you may know as the team behind Back to the Future. And they also co-wrote, well, they pitched it originally. And then once it turned into more of a, um, studio project, John Milius got involved too. If you don't, have never heard of him. He's about as polar opposite as you could get from Robert Zemeckis nice. and Bob Gale, which is crazy. At least to me, I thought that was interesting. Uh, he wrote the screenplay for Apocalypse Now. He wrote and directed The Wind and the Lion, which is a, it's a historical epic. Uh, you might not have seen that, but you've definitely seen or heard of Conan the Barbarian and Red Dawn, the original. He wrote and directed both of those two. Uh, I think he also directed, like, Clear and Present Danger. So that's the kind of guy you're thinking of, along with the fun, you know, Back to the Future folks. It turned into be, a, you know, a very strange combination. Um, but anyway, Spielberg liked it, and he he hopped on board. They pitched uh, John Wayne, actually, to play the general character at one point, and uh, he, w- he wasn't having it. Uh, according to Wikipedia, again, check your sources. It's a great place to go at first, but, you know, you want to make sure that the source... Uh, that they link to actually is legit, but he uh, he felt like it was disrespectful. He said, "You're making fun of a war that costs thousands of lives." That's my John Wayne. Apparently, I don't think it's very good. Um, so he's not in it. <laughs> uh, that's the lead, actually. John Wayne not in this movie. Um, but you know who is in it? So Mifune, who if you like film, if you're a film you know buff or historian at all, you know him as a really famous Japanese actor. In, like, just about every Akira Kurosawa movie. Um, and that you know, that's not the only movies he was in, he was an icon in Japan, but he uh, he's in this movie as the Japanese sub commander, and he's I think he does one, you know, he's one of the best parts of the movie, but anyway, we'll get into that later. Uh, it's another John Williams movie, and he did the score. And apparently, Spielberg likes this as his favorite John Williams uh, march, not necessarily piece, but. The, the 1941 march that goes over and over again in this movie, over and over again. Uh, it was actually a critical, uh, excuse me, a box office success. It uh, earned $90 million worldwide, but it did not hit the highs of Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is what it was coming on the heels of. So that's why this thing gets kind of pegged as Spielberg's biggest disappointment, his biggest flop. It also was kind of a critical failure at the time, I was looking back at some of the, you know, just doing some research and it's not like people said it was terrible. You know, obviously there's outliers of all kinds, but it was just kind of, he was a victim of his own success. Really. You know, when you hit, bat a thousand with freaking, excuse me, jaws and close encounters, like, you know, any sort of step back is going to feel like a major drop off. So, um, so that's where we're at. Um A lot of, People lately, I guess it's kind of developed a cult following. So I didn't know that, but it's had some, uh, you know, some reevaluations in the years since. Spielberg, I think, really kind of liked making it. He even said he's not embarrassed by it. So I guess that's the kind of the minimum threshold you want of anything you make. Um, and strikingly enough, so when I do this, I look at you know what awards these things won. And originally i was looking for like the razzies the golden raspberries i didn't even know if they existed back then but i didn't have to get there because this thing was nominated for three freaking oscars cinematography sound and visual effects it didn't win any but still that if your worst movie is nominated for three oscars you're doing something right so that's our first movie 1941 we talked
2: about transformers though so <laughs>
1: again hey that only got one though right not three I, think, this is I don't three. know. It might have gotten more.
2: Yeah, it might have. Brandon, Brandon, look that up for us. How many Oscar nominations did Transformers get?
1: Um, that's also Michael Bay, not Steven Spielberg. I think he produced. To... He's an He was an executive producer. <But> my point <laughs> being, really he was. He was. My
2: point oh, being, you can not necessarily. Uh, the, the technical categories can still be good.
1: I yeah. I I still think it's a pretty solid floor here. If this is your worst movie. Uh, this is going up against Ridley Scott's The Counselor. Um, oh, which, by the way, I guess I should give you the combined tomato meter scores on both of these. 1941 had 40% Rotten Tomatoes tomato meter, the critics' score, and 48% audience score for an average of 44. And uh, The Counselor was 34% critics and 23% audience for a total of 28.5. Uh, substantially less popular than 1941. Um, if you haven't seen this one, a, uh, a lawyer on the Mexican border, the, uh, the eponymous counselor, he, uh, he's got a, a new love in his life and he also has some new questionable, um, business dealings. He also has questionable ethics and he wants a little bit of a taste of that, uh, border drug trade. And so he makes some choices and, uh, things kind of spin out of control from there. So it was actually written by Cormac McCarthy who you probably recognize the name. He wrote The Road, the book. Several of his other movies were turned into um, movies, including No Country for Old Men, which, uh, well, we'll get into it. But this movie, I think, wants to be that movie, and it's not. But regardless, this was the first movie that Cormac McCarthy uh, actually wrote a spec script for. So instead of writing a novel and turning it into a movie, he wrote this, and he, uh, he wrote this from the outset as a movie. Ridley Scott, the second he heard about it, he was like, I'm all in. Um, He said, he took it very seriously. These are quotes from Ridley Scott. I stopped everything that morning and read. It was in the form of a novella, not a film script. It read like a book. It took me about an hour and a half to read. Blah, 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 blah. I shouldn't blah, blah, blah. One of the greatest filmmakers of all time, but sorry. Um, So he flew to Albuquerque. I met him on a Monday, and by Monday afternoon, we'd shaken on it. It was that simple. We just shook on it, and that was the deal. So Ridley Scott was really into this movie, um, the script. So he uh, he wanted to do it. God bless him. And he did. One sad bit, uh, his brother, Tony Scott, tragically um, took his own life in 2012. That was right during the middle of filming on this. They paused filming for a long period of time because of that, as you can imagine. So the film is dedicated to him, um, which is nice. But, you know, very sad that we, we lost him. And uh, nothing really, you can't Tony, really tip Tony it off Scott that.
2: is his brother, right?
1: Yes. Tony Scott, really okay. Scott were the brothers.
2: longest time. I could never remember. I could never, if it was brother or son, but it's his
1: brother. And okay. they came up kind of together in the, the music video and commercial space, um, not music video, commercial space. Um, I think Tony might have done some music videos regardless. They, they kind of had a very similar path until they diverged once they started doing feature films, but um, they, they still were, they were, you know, great pals and Ridley said whenever he would make a movie he'd send, send it to Tony for uh, notes and he'd get like 20-30 pages of notes back and he, and he said Tony never sent one to him though for <laughs> so I thought that was kind of fun um, but anyway the movie eh, it it didn't lose money but it, it sure wasn't a hit it, it was $25 million budget made $71 million worldwide um, most people said it was god awful um, this was one I thought was interesting. Richard Roper of Ebert and Roper fame after, uh, Siskel passed away, right? Siskel passed away, right? And that's why Roper came on or did they just, right. okay. yeah. Okay. Anyway, so Robert, Richard Roper, uh, apparently liked it a lot. He said, uh, that Ridley quote, fashioned a sexy, sometimes shockingly violent, literate and richly textured tale. The Shakespearean consequences of one man's irrevocable act of avarice. I entirely disagree with that. Not to, you know, bear the lead, uh, but uh, anyway, he was one of the few people who liked it. It won no awards, uh, as far as I can tell, except for the MTV Movie Awards as a best WTF moment category, or at least did in 2013. And the Cameron Diaz scene, which if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about, uh, won that award. So there's your history um i i hope you've watched the movies if you haven't and you're still listening i don't not sure why but just go ahead and pause it go watch the movies and then come back
2: although you one might suggest that you could save yourself the time if you just want to listen to this because i'll start out by saying when talking about both of these movies they're not good and i love Steven Spielberg and even some of his um, like I love artificial AI, artificial intelligence. Right? I like that movie. Legitimate. I own it. Okay. I like that movie. And
1: 1941,
2: um, that was a pure struggle for me to get through. I simply, oh man, um, was this bad? I had always heard about it. Okay. I had always, uh, even though I've been a big Spielberg fan, I don't know if it was because I didn't want to tarnish him in my mind or what but I just never went back and watched 1941 cuz I was you know topic didn't interest me and and all that kind of stuff and I was just like I don't know I don't know. I, the comedy for Spielberg I don't think so and turns out I was right to do it but I I watched it for this show we're doing this for you folks and um you know one of the things that struck me as I was watching it is um because sometimes you know spielberg if there's one criticism that we've talked about this before in earlier episodes where if there's one thing that that crit, there's criticism they can levy on him it's that he's maybe too saccharine with some of his thing with some of his uh, films and the way he approaches certain topics and i don't think that 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 even though i don't agree that it's necessarily a fault i, I don't i don't dismiss it entirely but one of the things that i think he does very well Is he does add levity to a good bit of his move to his movies and a good bit of you know very heavy topics without like detracting from them, but he does levity very well, he does not do comedy very well. And 1941 is a strict, straight up comedy, and like there's this it's a fantastic cast, right? John Belushi. Um,
1: Dan Aykroyd's in it. John Candy. Everybody is in this movie. Comes out of nowhere. In 1979. And if they were alive, they're in this movie.
0: So many people are in this movie. I actually looked up that. Uh, I wanted to, I couldn't remember if this movie came out first or the movie Animal House. Because it has Tim Matheson. It has John yep. Belushi. And it, this came out after Animal House. And I wonder if at the time this pulled a lot of, because Animal House was like a big hit. Yeah. I wonder if at the time, like, I think maybe our generation doesn't recognize that, like, John Belushi was, like, a big-name actor that pulled people into movies in the way that, like, Will Ferrell does today. And so I think that probably was part of the draw of the movie. It's just the cast had a lot of these SNL stars at the time that were just really, really hot.
2: Yeah, and, I mean, John Belushi was on – he's on the cover. He's on everything. The dude's in it for, like, seven minutes, and it's all his – The he doesn't have – more than, like, three words spoken until, like, the end, basically. And he's just, like, running bow-legged, chasing after his runaway plane. And his plane is, like, like just dipping and diving because he's looking at a map. And he's eating glass in the cockpit. It's fucking weird, man. And he's, <laughs> he's, uh, but, yeah, I mean, just to go back on the, the cast, I mean, Christopher Lee is in it, Dracula himself, Lord Tyrannus. Saruman, right? Dude, he plays a German. Him. He plays a German who's somehow a German commander who's somehow on this boat with the Japanese. Um, I don't so know. Not, not did, as did big of guys... a
1: stretch as you would think. Like it, the fact that he was a okay, yeah, Marine you know, is strange, I but know. there were, you know, they had military liaisons between the Axis powers. So it, it's not inconceivable, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous, right? So the thing so... I love about him Sorry, just real quick. Yeah. He plays a Nazi in this. And I hope I'm not stepping on your thunder here. In real life, he was in, like, the freaking OSS in World War II. So he probably literally killed a Nazi.
2: Yeah, he and was a Nazi hunter. A
1: so I love that.
2: Yeah, like that show. There's actually a show on TV, or at least I think it's done now, but had Al Pacino in it. I think it's called Hunters, about Nazi hunters. And that was based on the the crew that, like, Christopher Lee was in, in real life. But anyway, um so like yeah and it's just by the way um so i watched this via crackle i downloaded the crackle app to watch this um did you go to,
1: to, but there's like 11 it looked like there were like 11 commercial breaks on the crackle feed
2: yeah it, it took like an extra half hour I, to watch i
1: didn't i didn't want to do that
2: so then maybe it's just the crackle version but in the scenes where they're on the japanese um submarine and they're talking like were there subtitles are we supposed to know what they're saying uh, I, I, I didn't have, have any subtitles. i didn't have any subtitles
1: not uh, as a matter of course most a lot of the times it said just you know so i yeah, watch like everything if you close captions
2: if you turn closed captions on yeah, yeah it might say like indistinct japanese dialogue right. or something like right. that but like the actual words of what they're saying to each other were we supposed to know and i just got a crappy I, version I, I had
0: it i it, it was telling me what they were saying for really me. okay and really i rented it through you know like Apple iTunes, and sure. it was showing me. Now, I just because I am becoming an old man, I watch a lot of movies that I've never seen before with subtitles in general. Same. So it was already showing me subtitles, but then when there was Japanese speakers, it would translate into English what they were saying. So that could have been just
2: because I am an old guy and I had the subtitles on anyway. Interesting. I have I have a strong aversion to subtitles. Like I won't, I, I will watch a movie with them, but uh, weirdly, it gives me a headache. Like, looking up and down? I don't know. It's a thing. But anyway, um, so yeah, that was weird. But I, just right off the jump, okay, we're talking, so this movie is just, context, we've already talked about it, 1979, this movie's made. At this point, Spielberg has made Duel, Sugarland Express, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, right? That's his, his filmography at that point, unless I'm missing, like, a smaller one or something. But, um, so, right from the jump, this movie, almost shot for shot the opening of jaws and this is like a self referential joke that he's got going on it's the same it's the woman you know it's
1: the same she's woman. just running is it it's the same literally woman literally the same actress oh then. that's even i didn't even know
2: that that makes <laughs> yeah. it slightly better but she's running down the beach and she disrobes and she gets into the water and it's the same beach and it's the same tracking shot and then you know the water starts bubbling but instead of being pulled under with the shark then all of a sudden the submarine emerges from the water and the giant like antenna of the submarine just so happens to go right between her legs and she's gripping it. And it's just like, she gets pulled up in the, and I'm just like, Oh my God, I got to watch this whole thing. And it was like, right from the start, I was like, this is awful. And I'm like, just is, is like, I know jaws was a huge hit. And at this point Spielberg was, was pretty well respected for a young director, but I'm like, you've only been around, you haven't been around for like 10 years and we're already doing these self-referential jokes. Like, is this, like, are we, is this a little much right here? You know, just right from the start, I was kind of like, come on, you know? And I just, I mean, did you guys like that? Or did you think, were you on the same boat as me? I
0: will have to say, so I started to keep track and I'm curious to know what you guys thought. (laughs) It is just crazy for a comedy that has so many legitimately funny people how almost not a single joke lands. I mean, almost not a single joke lands. There were a couple of times I laughed. I did laugh at, when John Belushi, it has this really beautiful shot of the plane flying over what is clearly the Grand Canyon. And he's looking at a map. And as he's looking at the map, he puts the map down, and he goes, "Huh, oh, I'm lost. And so that I thought was kind of funny because he's clearly over the Grand Canyon. And then at one point when they are, there's like a, it's later in the movie, and uh, the Tim Matheson character is trying to take off in this plane, and it hits a tower, and there's a guy <laughs> over on the side talking on a radio, and this tower completely collapses and rips this entire military radio console off the table, and the guy doesn't move at all, and he goes, how do you read me? And that was, like, those are the only two moments that I really got, you got, like, a genuine laugh out loud for me, and then just about everything else, it just, not a single thing lands, and I'm just, you know... I know comedy can be subjective and I know a lot of these people were you know really famous at the time and big comedians it just it wasn't that funny to me.
1: Well maybe, maybe I'm just, just an easy mark but the whole Slim Pickens bit when he's kidnapped and brought onto the the German or the Japanese submarine he was just cracking me up especially when he's in the bathroom and he he's like it's literal bathroom humor I mean so it's the bottom of the barrel but he like uses his shoe to make it sound, you know, like he's going to the restroom and all the, the sailor cuts to them and they'll like lean in real close, like, what's going on? I don't know. That was cracking me up. But that
2: was mildly humorous, I thought. Um, I've always but, thought
1: he's pretty funny.
2: But to Nate, to your point, I mean, I literally have one of the things I wrote down was, How do you make John Belushi not funny? The dude is just funny by existing. Like that's his deal. And I'm just sitting there like that the scene where he's like uh you know, it's right before the Grand Canyon thing where he's, he's you know, well, he, it's the same scene, but he's flying, and then he's like, oh, I'm thirsty, and he pulls All out a like, bottle yeah. of Coke, and he's like, oh, a can of Coke. It's clearly a bottle. I'm guessing that was supposed to be funny, but it just looks like a flub in the, you know, what he said. And he's like, can on her, and he doesn't have one, and so he smashes the bottle and it's he's so just, shards. Yeah, it's, yeah, like it's just it's,
0: terrible. It's these little, like, fall, kind of like silly yeah. gimmicky physical humor things that just like and every i mean it just felt like
1: every single one of them was so forced. well
2: yeah they and i you know, to the slapstick yeah
1: instantly and it just it never stops
2: and and nate you know you say comedy is subjective which i totally agree with but this particular comedy i actually don't think is subjective really like this whole um david zuckerman like spoof slapstick thing like it's pretty objective that's its whole deal right like this is the day the shit hits the fan and then the literal shit hits the fan it's like okay you know I get it that's the that's the whole point of that type of humor and for that still not to land on this it's just like it has to be really bad and I it just was like it they were trying to have that like top secret I love that movie like that movie's hilarious you know airplane that movie's gonna
0: say airplane because airplane comes out a year later
2: it and, just nails it totally and, nails and,
0: it and and every single joke in that movie lands 40 years later i mean every single one it's just crazy how these movies are separated by 1 year yeah and they had all this great comedic, comedic talent um in both of them and just one of them is still a stone cold classic and the other one i mean I'm, you're right. Comedy is subjective, but I'm certainly not the first person to say that this movie was not funny. I mean, this movie is just objectively
2: not funny. But yeah. Hey, everybody. Um, jumping in here. Really sorry to say for this. We had some audio difficulties in the file with this. So unfortunately, we lost um, about 25 minutes of the show. Uh, now, thankfully, you know, we, we kind of knew what we talked about. So I'm just going to give a quick little recap here, if I can, <clears throat> excuse me, if I can, um, about what, we're, uh, what we talked about. And then we'll kind of resume with the episode so you can at least have, have a little bit of feeling of, of what we had just talked about. So uh, one of the things that we discussed uh, was in 1941. Spielberg's uh, movie there were there were quite a few ethnic jokes that really didn't land. Um, we, we talked a lot about there's a scene in a tank where uh, John candy's character gets hit with some exhaust and he essentially has black face on and then there's a black character who he gets hit with like a bag of flour or something, and then he has white face um, and you know once he realizes he has white face, the black character just kind of laughs and and thinks it's funny and then once john candy has um realized he has blackface he completely freaks out almost to tears and the the black character jokingly says get to the back of the of the tank and it's it's just all in in poor taste should have been even should have been poor taste even then and uh, did not age well Uh, another thing that we we discussed that didn't age well is a lot of these sort of really rapey vibes that different characters have specifically the treat Williams and 10 Matheson characters. And, and in regards to the Nancy Allen character, who's a woman who her entire arc in the entire movie is just, Hey, uh, I get really turned on by planes when they take off. And so the other characters, their, their whole goal, the entire movie is to get her into a plane and take off in that plane so that they can have sex with her. And what just amounts to a lot of really weird sort of rapey sexual assault vibes. And again, just stuff that does not land, does not go over well. I um, shouldn't have at the time and definitely uh, definitely doesn't age well at all. Um, now, some of the things that we did mention too with 1941 is specifically one scene in particular, The uh, and this is kind of, maybe the best thing about the movie, if you will, where there was a dance scene at the USO. We, we kind of, uh, it was like a USO party and they had a big dance sequence and they were talking and they were, um, there was kind of a fight going on in the middle of the sequence and it was really well done scene, very interesting. And I actually had mentioned in the original recording that I, after that I saw the show, I went and read from Roger Ebert his review of the movie at the time. And he specifically called out that scene as well as pretty much the only thing that worked and the best thing in the whole movie. And besides the fact that it was the best thing that worked, it was really interesting because there were a lot of similarities from that going into, there was a USO scene that Steve brought up um, that was in Indiana Jones, and the temple of doom. That was very similar. And then just recently, you know, when he released uh, Spielberg released West side story, There was a dance hall sequence that was very, very similar. And we all kind of noted that it was very interesting how 1941 was filmed in 1979 Raiders of the Lost Ark was, or I'm sorry, uh, Temple of the Doom was in the eighties. I can't remember what year exactly. And then, um, you know, West Side Story was just a couple of years ago. And you see this little sort of nugget of Steven Spielberg of who he is, even in even at his worst. And then it still carries through, 40 years later to through all these other movies. And it's, it's, it's really cool to see that, that even, even when somebody can be at their worst, they can still have that little, yep. that's Steven Spielberg moment. Uh, and and you knew that's what it was. So that was, that was really cool. Even if the rest of the movie um, didn't really, didn't really nail anything. Um, the, uh, we also noted that the music was really good and that John, um, Steven Spielberg, you know, had mentioned that John Williams' score, the the March sequence in particular for this movie, was one of his favorites. So, uh, from there, we kind of transition into the idea that this was early on in Spielberg's career, and it had you could you could almost say it was allowable with the the folly of youth, if you will. He just unfortunately, uh, you know, he was young, he was full of hubris from his past successes. At this point, he'd already had Jaws, and he'd had you know Duel was such a success that they it was made for TV and they released it in theaters. And then he had close encounters of the third kind and all these successes right after another. And he just got kind of too full of himself, I think. And um, so, but you know, you can blame that a little bit on folly of youth, but, but when, when we shift to the counselor, start talking about that, it's harder to, uh, to give that pass to, uh, to Ridley Scott. The counselor came out in 2013. That was just 10 years ago. Ridley Scott had been around uh, for about 40 years at that point. So not as easy to, to excuse what goes on there. And and we just kind of, you know, I talked in the original recording a lot about how excited I was. My first experience with it, I went, I was, you know, obviously full-grown adult by that point. And so I, I went and saw it on my own in the theater. I was super pumped. Love Ridley Scott, amazing cast. Michael Fassbender, Brad Pitt, Javier Bardem, Penelope Cruz, Cameron Diaz, like just... Tons of uh, just really good, very very prominent actors, and was um, really excited. And I told a story about how sometimes I'll I'll go and see movies um, later at night. You know, after my uh, my wife maybe go to bed if she's she's a movie she's not super jazzed on seeing and wants to me to see it first and to see if I can tell her that we should see it. And then we'd go see it again if it's really good. But so that was the way Counselor was. So I went and saw the Counselor, and I came back and and told her. No, do not see this movie. We don't want to do it. So um, it was just the the cast was wasted. Um, we we talked about how the the counselor. It was it was written by Cormac McCarthy, <clears throat> excuse me, who wrote the books No Country for Old Men um, and The Road. You know, so he'd been he'd been coming off with of some success here from book adaptations that he'd had, but this was the first one that he wrote directly for the screen. And I think you could kind of tell. And I think that we all kind of mentioned, um, Nate especially hit on how it seemed like the council really wanted to be no country for old men. It really wanted to have this sort of treatise on, on violence and what violence does to people and how it changes people and, and, and how it, how it interacts with and shapes the world that we're in um and and you know those are uh those are our lofty goals and no country for old men freaking nails it that movie you know nate said in his eyes was a masterpiece I, w- I would agree with him but uh it's it's a great movie and this movie just falls so so short in all the areas where that movie succeeded um and then Nate kind of mentioned that for him, Cameron Diaz is is an actress who just immediately kind of takes him out of uh, out of a movie just because he he doesn't find um, her acting skill, acting style, just just her in general. You know, it's it's hard to remove. Hey, that's Cameron Diaz from just an actor being on the screen. <laughs> so, uh, and he actually felt brought up a really good point that the role, like the 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 character that Cameron Diaz played where this, this sort of really conniving, sort of mysterious woman actually almost felt more like a Penelope Cruz role, which was interesting because she played the just naive person who somehow gets involved with the guy who's somehow involved in this drug trade and doesn't
1: know what happened and how at all, and it just kind of
2: sort of pretends that it doesn't exist, even though it'd be hard to say that she doesn't see it. But um, So that was kind of an interesting point that Nate brought up where you could – if they had switched roles, maybe that would have made it uh, a lot better movie. Um, just because those actors the, the actresses maybe would have been better fit for those roles. Um uh, but something we were all agreeing on, uh, in agreement on in terms of something that was good from the counselor was the scenes between Michael Fassbender and Brad Pitt, where um those were probably all the best scenes in the movie. And whatever poor writing might have taken place, the writing got kicked up. Steve brought up this point where it seemed that the, the writing in the movie was bad, but once Brad gets on screen, they, kept, they ratchet it up to 11, and he just kind of nails it, and those scenes are really good, uh, and and Steve was absolutely right on with that one. Those are definitely the the best parts of the movie, um, and that that is kind of everything that was discussed, obviously, in quite a bit more detail, but I just wanted to give... Uh, you know as much of a of a high level overview as we could again, we really apologize for this you know we're new podcasts sometimes these things happen, so we'll um, you know we'll make sure going forward try to make sure it doesn't happen again so we will um, do that but but again we'll 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 plop you right back into the episode right after all the all the discussions I just outlined take place so hopefully uh, it won't be too tough of a transition uh, but but thanks for sticking with us through this and and
1: hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. And I'm still mad about this movie. Now, I'm mad because I think in this movie, there is a No Country for Old Men. I think there's an equivalently, equivalently good movie. I think if you, A, I think Michael Fassbender, I love him as an actor. I think he's terrible in this. I think they miscast him. I think if you get somebody that's, ironically enough, his co-star in X-Men, picture this movie with James McAvoy. And then the Malinka character, Cameron Diaz's character, and her subplots just completely removed. So the whole her trying to get you know steal the drugs and all that just picture everything else the same, and it is now it's a meditation on choice and getting yourself in too deep and not being able to turn back once you've you know already taken certain steps because I thought that really hit the El Jefe I think was the character the the Mexican drug. cartel leader who's on the phone with him at one point. I thought that whole bit was really actually pretty good talking about, you know, well you want it to be, you know, this way, but isn't that the line from the wire? It's like, you want it to be this way, but it's not or something like that. Uh, Anyway, you know, he's like the point of making the choice is where you want to be, but you're already well past that. You're now in the firmly in the consequences phase of life. And I thought that that all was really pretty powerful, but then it goes back to, Cameron Diaz and Natalie Dormer, by the way, where'd she come from? Awesome. Glad to see her. Uh, but
2: um, Love you, Natalie. If you're yep. listening, we're big fans on this big show. Big fans.
1: Um, but, you know, all this, it's like this subplot is unnecessarily convoluted. And that's the thing I thought was craziest. To bring it back into, I guess, our theme, Ridley Scott, you know, some of his, I think, I think the complaints that people would have about him, which to me are very few, are sometimes he... He likes to just do stuff too much visually, and the stories kind of suffer for it. Sometimes the stories are just too straightforward. Like, I think of Robin Hood a lot. The story is just super straightforward. There's no twists. There's no turns. The dialogue's just meh. And he's just telling you, just kind of just plain Jane, straight, you know, thorough story. And he's really getting off on the historical, you know, the setting and all the battles and stuff. And everyone else is just kind of like, well, this is kind of just a boring story. Here, I think it's the opposite. It's just too goddamn convoluted. Uh, which you talked about, Jeff. It, it, I don't know who's doing what or why. Um. I, yeah, I think... This movie, I think, fails because he actually gets away from his Ridley Scottness. Um. And I don't know what he saw in this, but...
2: but you, you talk about a No Country for Old Men being in this movie, you know, and I don't think that's wrong, but I think, you know, more so than the casting, I think if we just back up the timeline a little bit, right, like, we... You know, if you think about No Country for Old Men, we're essentially walking into this movie at the point where Josh Brolin goes to the motel, right? And hides the money in the vent. You know, everything is pretty much already done. And it's just, you know, he's he's already in. And it's it's about what happens after. So, but... You know, if we're to back up, because, yeah, that whole diatribe at the end is about, you know, there are many different universes. And this is, I thought that diatribe, at, at first it was good and went on way too long. He could have <laughs> toned down at, to like, the last few parts. But, um, I can hear that. you know, but, like, the Josh Brolin, at the very beginning, when he finds the bag of money and No Country for Old Men, right? He, you know, he finds it. He's just a guy. We, we've already seen him in his trailer. We've seen him interacting with his wife. He finds the money. You know, he's kind of looking around, and he's, do I take this? You can see him go through this this, this thought process of, okay, what am I going to have to do? What's happening now? Am I going to be this person that's going to take it, or am I just going to let it go? And he decides to take it, and once he does, he's in. And then from there, we see all these decisions that he makes because he made that one decision, right? But, like... You know, technically, there's the point in the early on in the movie where Javier Bardem's like, "You're either in or you're not," and he Michael Fassbender says, "I'm in," but it's clear he had already made that decision before, yeah. well before, and he'd already gotten into this whole business with Javier Bardem well before. And Javier Bardem even says they've known each other for two years um, at that point. So, like, if they would have just backed up and shown us a little bit more of why he wanted to get into this, it's it's greed, it's avarice, whatever. We you know we get that, but. Just showing a little bit of more of just where he was when he made that decision. So we can at least then that that scene at the end, that 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 speech hits way harder because we saw who he was before he made this decision. You know, but we didn't see that now. And so it's just this guy who made a shitty decision. He's a shitty person. Nobody in this movie's likable. And so everyone dies, and we don't care. Why are we supposed to care about any of this? I even wrote that down. It's like, why do we care?
0: I think, Jeff, you are saying You are, whether you know it or not, you're giving an exact description of why visual storytelling can be so powerful. Because the reason No Country for Old Men works is the decision that the character makes, we see it visually. Mm -hmm. He stumbles upon it. And by the way, interestingly, it's done with no dialogue, it's not done with a single piece of dialogue. He stumbles on it, he watches it from a distance, it's all visual. He comes up to it, he thinks about it, and then he even goes back later that night. We see visually the steps that he's taking to make this decision, whereas Michael Fassbender in this movie is just some guy's like, well, you're in or you're out. And then like yeah. another guy later warns him about being in or out, and he's like, no, I'm in. I feel great. And there's <laughs> nothing... Whereas every little step in No Country for Old Men, as you see, you, you literally get to see his thought process of how he's thinking through. He finds the body under the tree. And he's going and he finds the body under the tree and he's kind of looking around. And there's this whole long sequence where he makes this decision and he kind of puts himself, he inserts himself into this narrative. There's nothing like that in The Counselor. It's like, it's like he's already made the decision we when we meet up with the character and it just it doesn't feel right we have like you said no idea why we care about this or why we should care about this
2: yeah and because i have at one point so the way i make notes is i'll like draw a little arrow and then i'll make a note and then if i have a note that corresponds to that one i'll draw another arrow like a sort of indent underneath that one right and so my indentation at about halfway through goes we're almost an hour in, and Cameron Diaz just fucked a car. And we have no idea what's happening. <laughs> and then below that, I say there's a deal with the counselor. And then below that, I say why should we care? And below that, it's none of these characters are likable. And we're an hour in, and we already got that. So that's more than half, you know, the movie. And it's just if you're if you're that far in, and that's where you're at, it's it's like well, there's not really much that can save you for the last hour, even. But yeah, you know, to your point, Steve, about that not being very well written. You know, one of the, the quotes I have is, you know, the, the they, the random drug dealers that they're talking about that are, you know, behind all this stuff. Um, Brad Pitt at one point says, they've seen a coincidence. They just don't believe in them. I'm like, oh, <laughs> we're really philosophical now, boys. Like, yeah, it's just was, like, come on. I, there uh, was a lot
1: of cringing yeah. happening on my end on some yeah. of the dialogue. and Especially, oh.
2: And Go Like ahead. Michael Fassbender and Penelope Cruz, you know, the the whole crux of Fassbender's the, him feeling the weight of his decisions is, you know, they talk about so much. How much do you love Nora? Is her name? How much do you love Nora? Would you be the guy that would would take the bullet for her and all this kind of stuff? And he's like, I absolutely would. You know, he's just so gets so emotional over it. And uh, like, we have no context for their yeah, relationship at all. We just we see, see at the very beginning their precoital, postcoital, whatever yeah. they are at that scene and then you know there it stuff happens in that scene and we're like i guess they're you know like each other <laughs> and uh and then he just buys this extravagant ring which we spend more time we get more characterization from the jeweler <laughs> selling him the diamond than we do his own wife that he's or his fiance that he's proposing <laughs> to
1: and uh we get more then, characterization about the ring than we do about her as a Yeah,
0: we learn, like, a lot about <laughs> diamonds. About and, like, how yeah. diamonds are graded than we do almost anything in this movie.
1: It, it
2: feels uh. like, uh, just, I know from stuff I've tried to write. If I ever like research something and I find out something cool, I'm like, oh, I'm going to put this in here. I'm going to put all this <laughs> yeah. stuff in here. That's what it felt like. Cormac McCarthy probably was like, I'm going to research diamonds for the scene. It was like, Oh man, this stuff's really cool. And just dumps it on there because then like 20 minutes later, he rolls up with Cameron Diaz yeah. in, the same, in a different scene and she spurts out mm. stuff. That's like not quite the same, but you know, close enough. It's supposed to show something about her character, I guess. I don't know, but it's just more excuse for him to throw in diamond knowledge.
1: It's, yeah. it's
2: it's it was it was absurd and we don't and then Not like great. and then you know michael fassbender calls penelope Cruz like i fucked up we gotta go let's go to boise you know or she she it was her idea to go to boise and then she didn't ever stop and be like whoa whoa you're just a lawyer what's going on here you know never once she was just like
1: okay i'm
2: scared but let's go and it's
1: it just oh, yeah the most so she got she's like how bad and he's like real bad
2: <laughs> That's and then it's the, like, okay, well, in that case, we'll go to Boise. No big deal. That's
1: another thing. So, like, they, I, the scene at the horse track when one of his, his former clients comes up. Yeah. Was that – what the hell was the point? Of it? You know, they're trying to, like, hint that, you know, he's he's a little bit shady. He's got some shady stuff in his past. But there's no payoff to that whatsoever. Nothing. None. That guy doesn't come back.
2: Whatever he was referencing doesn't right. come back and happen.
1: Yeah, Nothing.
2: I so thought the same like thing. It's we're like just that.
1: supposed to know that he's a I guess he was a bad he's guy. Got some shady clients. I mean, newsflash, but guess what? If you do any sort of criminal law, you're going to have If you do any sort of law, you're going to have that.
2: And and then he's he's <laughs> waiting to meet Penelope Cruz at the end after, you know, so they can go off to Boise together. And he's I think he's just in waiting.
1: Boise. Follow up, keep up with the narrative here, Jeff. Is he
2: in Boise at that point?
1: Uh, I think he Well, shit, I don't even know. That's how what I interpreted it.
2: Oh well, he's in the he's in some the lobby of some hotel, right? And um, he's uh, his fiance, whom he loves so desperately, is hours late. Dude has a fucking sandwich. He eats a sandwich in the hotel <laughs> while he knows his wife or his fiance could be in danger and could be
1: dead. And he's just like, oh, I'm just gonna get this sandwich here. <laughs> oh. a man's gotta eat. <laughs> This is probably right after he filmed the Bobby Sands movie. So, you know, he was probably feeling it quite a bit.
2: I'm sure that's probably it. But And then and there's all this stuff that's just like so obviously stupid foreshadowed. The very first scene, Javier Bardem is. Do you know what a clicker rope, whatever the... I don't know what it was called. but
1: Chekhov's Bolito is what I referred to it in my notes.
2: Yes, the Bolito. is. Yeah.
1: Chekhov's Bolito paid off, man.
2: Yeah, it was like... But it was so clearly like, okay, this is going to happen. Somebody we know... This is we're gonna see it in action, right? And then Brad Pitt um, talks in the the second sequence, you know, about the, um, the, the I guess I don't know how else to say it, the snuff film that he had oh, yeah. reference of, and I think we're supposed to believe that's what happened to. To Nora, right? That's why I they sent the DVD. I did not make the
1: connection until they showed the body being dumped. Then I'm like, oh, I guess that's what that is. But that wasn't yeah, that clear,
0: like because he gets the DVD. The DVD just says, "Hola," and then I think we immediately see her body getting yeah. dumped, and I th- I think it's implied that that is like, a yeah, surprise.
2: it's not certain, but I think that's definitely what we're supposed yeah. to make. So it's, but it's again, it's the, the point isn't that you know connection. It's just that it was it felt forced, right? Because it was like, okay. We want to do this big payoff for this particular thing, but how do we how do we shoehorn this in somewhere so it's obvious, right? Because there's no like Javier Bardem was literally just like, "Have you ever heard of a bully? Like, where does this come from? Why are you talking about that?" You know, I mean, <laughs> I get it; he's totally kind of right. crazy off the wall, but it's just uh, so know.
1: yeah. The only other thing that I wanted to talk about is I thought this was. This movie was wildly, seemed wildly uh, out of character for Ridley Scott in terms of the amount of, like, nudity and sexuality. And when I was reading one of our handy-dandy resources, Ridley Scott, a biography Hmm. by Vincent Labrudo, it even talks about that. And It says, Scott talked to uh, Lynn Barber of The Guardian uh, about the rare depiction of nudity or sex in his films. So, I, I... what I'm about to read is surprising based on what I saw, but then when I think about it a little bit more, I'm wondering if maybe this is why it was so cringy. He says, I find sex scenes actually embarrassing. I think it's possibly a bit prudish. Um, that's basically the gist of it. He doesn't like to do them. And he, he personally is embarrassed by it. And he goes for broken, this one, in terms of Ridley Scott movies. Like, this one is just dripping with it. Um, and, and it... it, it it just comes off as really weird and forced and cringy. I thought a lot of, it, especially a lot of the dialogue. The,
0: again, back to the Cameron Diaz thing. Every time she's a, yeah. I mean, the, in general, keep it in like, your I, well, and I, I, you know, I, I always get bothered by it. I mean, her whole purpose is that like, she's like this manipulative <clears throat> sex object and she is yeah. constantly bringing up sex. And it just, like you said, it's, it's so forced. It, it doesn't work in any way, and it's
1: it's like that's her one character
0: trait. And like,
1: yeah, well, she's a she's she likes a cheetahs, then, and she likes you know yeah, going to town. Like, like that's
0: just and it's just Get like it well, those her. are good character traits. I mean, she's an attractive woman. We can make those her character traits, and that's literally what they do. That's all her character yeah. is.
1: It was something,
2: yeah, and that's um, maybe. Maybe that's a topic we'll revisit later in this season about how neither of these directors really handles women all that well. But
1: anyway. Yeah, this this um, movie did not pass the Bechdel test, that's for sure. No.
2: And it's the, uh, it's actually funny because we've gotten to the near the end and I was, the comment I'd made earlier about how this is just like an overly long episode of Breaking Bad, I actually wrote that down and right as I'm writing that down, Dean Norris shows up on screen. (laughs) It was in Breaking Bad and I was like, holy crap! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was right. This is a sign. That
1: was pretty um, funny.
2: So, I guess, you know, we've thoroughly discussed these two movies. So, in terms of, you know, The Duel, The Duel of the Greats, right? You know, last week we talked about for the best of the best, right? Like which one truly embodies each director at their best and and truly embodies what they do best. And that's how we 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 landed on Schindler's List being the 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 more Spielbergian of Spielberg's movies than Gladiator was a Ridley Scott movie. So the question this week it isn't necessarily the same question of just who did it the worst, but the 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 way to look at it is you know who who swung hard. What was a bigger swing and and missed right? Like who was more ambitious and what they were trying to do, and you know didn't just some things didn't work versus just. You know, lack of ability, I guess you could say. And, you know, if you ask me, I'm going... Despite the fact that I think I disliked The Counselor maybe more than 1941, I think Ridley Scott gets more points for being ambitious because if your, if your goal is to be, um, you know, no, no Country for Old Men, we keep throwing that around because the similarities. You know, if that's what you're swinging for and you miss, then, you know... I'm 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 a little bit more okay with that than if you're like comedy is just not in Steven Spielberg's wheelhouse. Nineteen Forty One, that as a comedic enterprise, is just not him. It's not what he does, and everything on him was like it wasn't that the the movie's scope was too big and there was too much. I mean, there was a lot going on, but you know, it's just. I personally felt like it was, it was a true failure for Spielberg because that's just not in his skill set. Ridley Scott could make, if there's a good movie to be made out of the Counselor, Ridley Scott could make it. He just didn't this time, and so to me, I think I give him the edge in that regard. Whereas 1941, if there's a good movie in there, it's far away from Spielberg who's making it. You know, it's 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 somebody else who's way better with. You know, it's the 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 airplane Zucker. Is it Zuckerman Zuckerberg? What's the? I can't remember what their names are. Steve, can you look up who's the the, the directors of? Or Steve, uh, Brandon, you mind looking that up? Who the directed uh, Airplane? But um, so yeah, you know those people, or um, you know, somebody else who's who's more, you know, who's a better comedy director, is is going to be better at, at at turning 1941. Oh, that was Jim Abrams. My bad. I thought I thought Zucker. I don't know why I thought Zucker something but um abrams okay yeah so you know put him in charge of 1941 you still got to change a lot of things but you can make a better movie but no matter how much you change i don't think spielberg's making that a good movie but i do think ridley scott can make a better movie out of the counselor if he made it now oh david zucker and jerry zucker also directed airplane there we go so yeah jim abrams and those the zucker brothers so it's just zucker that's but anyway sorry so that's my thought you guys agree you disagree considering. Oh, yeah, you just saw 10 minutes. Nate, why don't you... Steve, Steve's still <laughs> ruminating adjusting. over the counselor, over what happened.
0: I, I have my answer. This week, I am... And I thought a lot about this. This week, I'm going to give it to Ridley Scott, and I'll tell you why. I think that probably 1941 is the bigger swing and miss. There's maybe even more elements of Spielberg in that movie, but... This is, honestly, this is not either director's fault. It just is a matter of time and when they were released. 1941 has had its critical reassessment. And I think 1941 is always going to be the movie that we know it to be. I can't get away from the possibility with The Counselor that I might be wrong. There is something in that movie, and I don't think there is. I want to be clear, I don't think there is. (laughs) There could be something in that movie that 20, 30 years down the line we're not seeing now, that it's a reaction to something in society at the time that we're not understanding now. And still has that Ridley Scott craft. I really do like the Brad Pitt scenes, and I do, while a lot of the dialogue is not good, I really, really like those scenes. And I just... I, I step back and I always try and ponder, particularly for, you know, it's only 10 years old. I think, what if I'm wrong? What if there is something there that I'm not seeing that it, this is going to be reassessed as, as years as years go on? And to that note, and I'm, you know, I, like Steve, I scroll through Wikipedia when I'm looking at all this stuff. I mean, there are people who have said that there, about this movie. There are people who have said that it is a great movie. Richard Roper gave it four out of four stars and said that it was really misunderstood. Uh, Guillermo del Toro, the filmmaker loved the movie and said that it was very misunderstood. Um, so I, I just wonder if maybe there's a part of me that is not looking at it the right way. And I've been, you know, I, we went into this episode knowing these are the worst films that maybe I'm conditioned in my thinking a little bit. So I will give this week to to Ridley Scott.
1: You guys both make excellent points, and I think for the most part I agree with everything you've said. Um, I think ultimately I'm the same. I think I go down on the side of Ridley Scott on this. The first act is just so bad and so boring. There's a line that Javier Bardem's character, it's a misogynist line said by a misogynist character, but he says the truth is you can do anything. He's talking about women. He says, the truth is you can do anything to women except bore them, which as you know, as disgusting as the line is, I think it's accurate about moviegoers. You can do anything to us. You can scare us. You can upset us. You can gross us out, but don't, don't fucking bore us. And the first act of this movie was so boring because we, everything you guys talked about, but, but once Brad Pitt gets in there and once things kind of kick into high gear a little bit, There's, you know, there's entertainment here. And there's movie magic in 1941 still, but I think because of everything you guys have said, I think I got to go with my guy, Ridley Scott. Is this the first time I've sided with him, by the way, in all four Mm -hmm. weeks so far? It might be. Um, But I think I'm going to go with him. There is a decent movie somewhere in here. That leave us tied now? Is that where we're
2: at? Yep, we're... We're tied Ooh. two to two. <laughs> yeah, I,
1: I added to the outline. I thought we could start doing a tally going forward, but I forgot to
2: actually. Talk yeah, about. I actually meant to say it at the top of the show that if you had been watching, we were we were at two to one in favor of Spielberg. But uh, so, so what we're, were
1: they as a refresher? Sorry. Um, he won... So
2: he won with Jaws over aliens or over okay. alien and uh, Schindler's, Schindler's list, list over Gladiator. And Ridley and then Spielberg, or, uh, Scott dual. won with the duelists over Duel. I mean, you guys are wrong, but I'll take it. It's it's <laughs> match. So, <laughs> and now the counselor over 1941.
1: Unanimous. This so is the first, there, unanimous. You, yeah. No, yeah no, this I is the first. Schindler's yeah. list.
2: Oh, wait, Schindler's list was, yeah. unanimous. Yeah, yeah. I guess we did also.
1: Schindler's that's not yeah. really fair though, because I mean, that like that one, that's a tough. Yeah, that's a tough. We, were, a tough we one. were always, we were always going to pick yeah. Schindler's list going into yeah. that. This one's interesting. I do think 1941 is not as horrible as people think, but yeah. That it really yeah. did age poorly. It
0: sure Aged did. poorly, and that's what I'm saying. It's like maybe the counselor will also age yeah. poorly, but there's something about it now. Like, I wouldn't say 1941. Oh God, I love that film. It's my favorite movie. Because <laughs> if someone watched it, they'd be like, "Wow, you have a lot of problems."
2: With <laughs> yeah, like, we need like to t-
0: how you treat women and just your your the general scope of how you look at society. <laughs> Whereas you could say the counselor is one of your favorite movies now and people might look at you weird, but there's something problematic about that.
2: Story. Yeah. Fair. That's a fair point. Absolutely. And also,
1: you know, what other movie has such an amazing juxtaposition of the sound of a head popping out of a helmet and a cork popping out of a bottle of wine. I mean, right there that exactly. should win the thing. Just going away. Exactly. <laughs> New fear unlocked. By the way, if I rode motorcycles, I'd be terrified. I would never do it again. Oh, yeah.
2: yeah, right. Man, that was an inventive way to kill somebody for a movie, but <laughs> yeah, horrifying. Um so yeah, that wraps it up for this week. So, next week, episode five, one of these two directors will will take the lead yet again, and we'll be we'll call it our uh our Frankenstein week, our playing God week, where we're going to sort of Compare and contrast—not sort of. We will compare and contrast um, *Jurassic Park* and *The Lost World* with *Prometheus* and *Alien Covenant*. So, you know, the idea being the you know John Hammond in *Jurassic Park* and *The Lost World*—the the, all the scientists there—they were playing God. They were bringing back these dinosaurs. And *Prometheus*, *Alien*—there, there, there's multiple people trying to, or multiple entities trying to play God, in that one of of creating and and societies and all that kind of stuff. So it'll be interesting to compare and contrast those. Uh, so that'll be, that'll be next week. So stay tuned for that one. Um, this is us signing off here for, for episode four, dual degrades. the greats. Thank you all so much for listening. We, uh, we absolutely love it again. If you uh, Steve hit them with the socials, you got anything you want to add to uh, if you think we're wrong on 1941 or the counselor um, hit us up, Steve, give us, give, give the socials.
1: We're at Duel of the Greats everywhere except for TikTok. On TikTok, we are at Duel Podcast, and you can always email us at Duel of the at gmail.com.
2: All right, and uh, for Steve Shepard and Nate Carter and our our man behind the curtain, Brandon Nichols, the producer, um, thank you all. We're, thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.
1: Bye.